you have not yet forfeited. 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 23, A Job Done Right. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Simone Diego, a sysop upgrade for Wayland. Uh, we'll get what her ability is a little bit later, but her flavor text is, a job done once is a job done right. That's part of the corpse side of humanity's shadow, the fifth data pack in the Genesis cycle, which we'll be getting to in some more detail as we go. But first, we actually have some breaking news. Breaking news. Balance patch. Yeah, the big boy has made some adjustments to a few cards. Uh, this is in the current, in the now, as of this recording. So I'm going to go ahead and cover those, even though many of these we have not yet seen in the course of this podcast. There is one nerf. It comes to Fisk Investment Seminar. This is a card from the Universe of Tomorrow, which is the last pack in the fourth, the Sansan cycle, which means it's the next-to-last Fantasy Flight expansion that is fully part of the reboot project, because following the Sansan cycle was... Uh, Data and Destiny, and then the rest is not in the reboot. So anyway, Fisk Investment Seminar is a criminal priority event, which means you can only play it as your first click. It costs zero, has two influence. Each player draws three cards. It is now, the nerf is, it is now only limit one per deck. Here are the big boys' comments. Fisk Investment Seminar is a card that has been on my watch list since the inception of the Reboot Project. Much like the already Limit 1 per Deck gang sign, FIS breaks some fundamental rules about how the runner can attack the corp outside of making runs. Although I always saw FIS as a somewhat toxic card, it went unchanged because I believe that its decks were not very strong. However, as those decks have gotten more tools, and people have experimented with them more, I've become disturbed by FIS's gameplay. Importantly, the decks it's being played in are very cool and strong, even without FIS, and its toxic play pattern feels like it's tainting otherwise interesting strategies. With this change, I believe these decks will often still slot a single copy, and it will be a cool surprise when played, but spamming it on consecutive turns will probably no longer be on the menu. There are also a handful of buffs, the first of which is Marked Accounts. It's a card we know, coming from Cyber Exodus, an NBN asset with a res cost of zero, a trash cost of five. It is one influence. When your turn begins, you take a credit for Marked Accounts, if you are able to, and for a click, you can place previously three, now four credits from the bank 
on marked accounts. Here are the comments. This is a move to support NBN Naked Asset Economy decks, typically run out of Near Earth Hub. I think these decks are really engaging and create tons of interesting decisions for both sides with trash everything, trash opportunistically, and just trash the best stuff, all being viable choices depending on the runner's game plan. These decks really thrive when they can play a mix of fragile but potent assets and reliable but lower impact assets. Marked accounts is supposed to be all the way at the extreme of reliable but lower impact, but its impact is just a bit too low even for that role. This change increases its long-term payoff by just a little bit. The next buff is for IQ, which comes from First Contact, the third pack in the third or lunar cycle. In the original Waldemar deck that we've covered in this podcast, IQ is a two-of. I had to swap it in for the purposes of the podcast. It is a Hasbioroid code gate with a res cost of zero and a strength of zero that has been changed to a strength of one. It is two influence. Its ability says that the res cost is increased by one for each card in HQ, and it has plus one strength for each card in HQ, and its only subroutine is an end the run. Big Boy's comment. Between next dice, other strong code gate gear checks, Magnet, Enigma, Quandary, and Bioroid heavy suites, there isn't really a clear place for IQ, even as a one of. It leads to a lot of interesting gameplay and decisions, so hopefully this power boost makes it a more attractive option. We have a set of cards, Silencer and Cloak, that are being buffed together. Silencer comes from Double Time, the sixth pack in the second cycle, the spin cycle. It's a criminal hardware with an install cost of one that has now been reduced to zero and three influence that provides one recurring credit for using killers. Meanwhile, Cloak comes from Creation and Control, the first deluxe expansion, which will be coming up here on uh, fairly soon in the course of this podcast. It's a Shaper Stealth program with an install cost of one and has gone from two influence to one influence. It provides a recurring credit for using icebreakers. Here are the big boy's comments. Stealth Criminal used to be a cool archetype that a lot of players enjoyed, and sadly, in Reboot, it has taken heavy collateral damage from the Desperado nerf. Initially, I thought that the deck would benefit enough from the removal of the Astro Train, its worst matchup by far, to make up for this, but now it seems the deck may need a bit more help. The decrease in the cost of Silencer should partially make up for the inevitable cost of having to install a memory card at some point in the game, and the influence reduction on Cloak should make deck building a little smoother. These are very safe buffs to make, as they affect basically no other decks. Try building a Switchblade deck and see what you think. Cerberus Lady H1, from All That Remains, the fifth pack in the Lunar Cycle, is a Shaper Fractor with a cost of 5 in Reboot that has been reduced to 4, or rather back to 4, that's what it originally was when FFG printed it. It has 3 Strength and 3 Influence. 
You place four power counters when you install it, and a hosted power counter can break up to two barrier subroutines. For one credit, you can also boost it by one strength. The Big Boy's Comments In line with the previous reversal of the Astrolabe nerf, traditional Shaper decks are still underperforming a bit, at least to the point that their core cards don't need the small nerfs that I thought they would at Reboot's inception. I decided that rather than look for cards to buff, it's a simpler solution to just keep reverting nerfs until these decks are in a good place. Additionally, Eli 1.0 reliant decks on the corpse side are some of the best options at the moment, so it's probably healthy to give some teeth back to that ice's natural predator. The next one is The Horde, which is from Mind and Mayhem, the recently released second reboot booster pack. It is the Anarch ID that is 50 card minimum 12 influence. That 12 has been boosted to 15 influence. And as you may recall, it has a litany of effects based on successful runs on HQ or R&D. Here are the big boys' comments on this one. I was a bit cautious with the Horde on release, since the ID does some very powerful things and is difficult to evaluate. I've been a bit surprised that most players have had the impression that it's a little on the weak side, compared to Valencia and Wizard, the other Anarch IDs that don't ask much from you in deck building. Going up to a normal influence value means either one more clone chip, or some more copies of cards like Earthrise Hotel, Career Fair, or Build Script. This gives you just one more reason to pick the Horde over another low-maintenance identity. And the final buff is System Outage, which also came into reboot from Mind and Mayhem, what was originally from 23 Seconds, the first pack from the Flashpoint cycle, the sixth cycle from FFG. It is an Anarch current event with a cost of previously one, now zero, and two influence that whenever the corp draws one or more cards, uh, he or she loses a credit if it's not the first time this turn the corp has drawn. And the big boy says this, I promise this card is good and fun, but people seem reluctant to give it a chance, preferring hacktivist meeting in every matchup. Costing zero is a huge buff for a card that is best to play right away, so I hope this gets you excited to try it in a deck. And those are your nerf and buffs most recent in the uh, most recent balance patch provided by the big boy. Anonymous tip. Defending against criminal. I provided anonymous, an anonymous tip from David Jensen, username not yet Superman back in episode 19, talking about early running. And I have talked about account siphon before, but this is a little bit more broad. And in just the early part of the reboot card pool, in just the first cycle here, a criminal can be quite powerful. So I thought I would share these tips, because I thought that they were just kind of good basic tips. Now, this post was made in February of 2013, which was just before Cyber Exodus. The third pack came out, and yes, we're up to the fifth pack, but I think in general, it's probably still good suggestions. Here are the comments. Criminal is very strong, and appears to be getting stronger with Cyber Exodus. 
It seems that many players struggle to compete against this faction, and it's skewing the winning percentage. This can stop. Here's a few principles and tips. Rule number one. Protect your RHQ and your archives early with stoppers, that is, and the run ice. Mid to late game, you'll want each server to cost the runner four plus credits to break. Guard against account siphon with some serious defensive power. Rule number two. Assume they possess an inside job. Every server you desire to protect must have two ice, with the highest cost to break ice not being the first encountered. Rule number three. Do not build a remote server prematurely. You want to make sure a bank job is preventable before you open a remote server. Rule number four. Assume they have forged activation orders. Don't play ice you can't afford to res. Ice in your hand is good against a runner who is trying to steal your HQ. Do not underestimate this use of ice. Note. General principle. Criminals are the only faction you can allow to take agendas early. Later in the game, the corpse get the advantage, so don't feel like you have to score that agenda and potentially open up a remote server too early. Exception to NBN in certain circumstances. Additional notes. Manage your hand appropriately, but don't force opening a remote server to avoid a discard. Better to trash an early asset or operation if you can't safely defend opening up a remote server. Always remember, if the runner has allowed himself to be tagged, make him pay. Count the criminal's cards. Criminals have so many options at their disposal, but they can't play everything. Sometimes icebreakers can be hard to come by in their event-heavy decks. Keep in mind, criminals who play Maker's Eye and Medium will now have a threat on all the servers. General. If you aren't using low-cost ice in your decks, you should be. Shadow, Caduceus, Ice Wall, and the Neutrals, these are good for all corp decks. I hope this is a given for many players. 14 is the lowest general recommended early ETR or equivalent ice count, for standard decks. Uh, 14 sounds a bit high. People played a lot of more ice in the early days of the game. That was me inserting that. Faction-specific hints. Wayland. Take your time. Be patient building up remote servers. You gain the advantage as you continue to draw hedge funds, beanstalks, even hostile takeovers. Limit those, as crims benefit from every credit. Score that posted bounty on your turn to take advantage of the tag. Res your archers on the back row. Even then, wait to res till you can surprise them. Fast remote players using AI have to make a hard choice to hold out and tighten up the centrals or push fast. These are tough matchups. Haas Bioroid. Be patient. Install to gain credits across all three centrals, even trash an out-of-date ice when necessary. When using accelerated beta tests, grow out one remote server all the way. It will look ridiculous to have five ice, 
but criminals can't run deep. Cute trick, but if you are running archived memories, try risking tossing a two-point agenda if you reach the hand limit. Crim's HQ threat is very high. NBN. Score at the right time. Be patient. No corp is as unforgiving as NBN. You must decide to score at just the right time. Although he doesn't really explain what that means. Also, make sure you can take advantage of their tags. Tollbooths or data ravens belong on HQ and archives. Are you able to punish with tags? Jinteki. 1. Run cheap ice, since Jinteki is quite poor. 2. Use Zaibatsu loyalty to stop satellite uplink and infiltration which make traps worthless. Four trash cost on loyalty is nice, too. I think in Reboot, Zaibatsu loyalty is seven, though, which is even more nice. Three, use net damage as a server defense, not to flatline, although it's nice. If the runner has to spend a turn or half a turn drawing back a hand, then that was a turn or half a turn I could have utilized to score. Four, snare in hand is important. And then user Zeromus mentions just one more thing. The criminal only has so many events, and eventually they will run out, and his funds will run out. Against criminal, you should be aiming for the long game. Slowly build up that big remote server and start scoring agendas. Satellite Uplink the corp side of humanity's shadow. Only nine cards for the corp in this pack, and six of them have been adjusted. All of those are buffs. Let's take a look at those six buffs first. For Haas Bioroid, Eve Campaign, an asset that formerly had a res cost of five, and now is four, a trash cost of five, and three influence. Place 16 credits on Eve Campaign when it is resed, and then take two at the start of each turn. Rework, a zero-cost operation. You shuffle up to previously one, now three, cards from HQ back into R&D. The art on rework is from Adam S. Doyle. Jinteki, Hokusai Grid, a region upgrade with a res cost of previously two, now one and a trash cost of four. It's two influence. Whenever there is a successful run on this server, do one net damage. The uh, art here from Emilio Rodriguez, his classic big uh, facility landscape type artwork. It's a nice piece. NBN, Data Hound. A sentry with a res cost of one, strength of two, and one influence. The subroutine was previously a trace two, and is now a trace six. You can look at cards from the top of the runner's stack equal to the difference between the trace strength and the link strength of the runner. You trash one of those cards and then rearrange the rest. From Wayland, Salvage, a code gate with a res cost previously of two, now zero. Mm, got a res cost of zero. Sounds dangerous. 
is a strength of zero. It's two influence. You can advance salvage, but only while it is rezzed. And each subroutine, each advancement counter provides a subroutine that is a trace two for one tag. And then Simone Diego, the upgrade, our title card, a res cost previously of four, now of two, trash cost of three, two influence, two recurring credits, which you can use to advance cards in or protecting this server. Art here from Matt Zeilinger. The three unchanged cards are from Jinteki, Whirlpool, a trap ice with a res cost of zero and a strength of one, also two influence. The subroutine says, runner cannot jack out for the remainder of this run. Then you trash Whirlpool. Art here from Adam S. Doyle. NBN has Bernice Mai, an upgrade with a res cost of zero and a trash cost of three. It is also two influence. Whenever there is a successful run on this server, trace five. And if you're successful, it's a trag. A tag. Trag is not a word. But if you are unsuccessful, then Bernice Mai is trashed. And then the one neutral card is Foxfire, a zero-cost operation with a trace seven to trash one virtual resource or one link. So very specific cards there. The at-a-glance Reddit thread says that for HB, Eve campaign is great. For Jinteki, Hokusai Grid is good. And for NBN, Bernice Mai is good. Matrix Analyzer. Let's talk about a couple of cards. Uh, Eve Campaign, first, is a pretty good card. I mean, great, according to the at-a-glance thread there. But it's made even better by being cheaper. I'm actually a little surprised that it got that buff, but hey, good. I'll have some more to say about Eve Campaign later. Uh, Rework. Uh, what do you do? It's a zero-cost card. So what do you do when you can't lower a card's cost anymore? Well, you jack up another number. And so going from one card shuffled from HQ back into R&D to three, that's pretty big. I mean, if you think about, I was just playing a game last night where I drew half my agendas in the first 10 cards of the deck. That's not fun. And we don't have Jackson Howard yet, so I don't know. Almost worth it. Of course, you have to have it early, and then it means you have to have three copies of it. Deck slots are tight. But certainly three, being able to shuffle three cards back in can really help you with that early agenda flood. Let's talk about Data Hound uh, a little bit more. Uh, that Trace 6 on Data Hound, and uh, Foxfire has a Trace 7. These are now the new peaks for a Corp Trace strength. But even still... Is that Trace 6 worth it? Here is a comment from Netrunner DB about Datahound from Lupus Yonderboy. Now, again, recommending, recognizing this comment is based on the original Trace 2. I've never given this one a try. Neither seen it on my table, as far as I remember. So the reasons I expose here are just an educated guess for why it doesn't see play. But it doesn't seem hard to find. Low strength. Low trace, dubious effect. 
Why would the corpse spend money to dig through the stack only to choose one card to trash? Okay, they can order the drawn cards as they want, but still. Why would the runner prefer to pay any credits instead of trashing one not-yet-drawn card? Not confident enough in their deck? And then a not-very-threatening sentry stands on the table that can be passed through with few threats. And also, why, why, oh God, why does this dog appear on emergency shutdown? Has Datahound ever been the chosen ice for this ability? If you have witnessed such madness, or even done it, tell us. We want to know. Uh, Goldstep adds this. It also lets you trash tools while burying card draw and tutors and leaving expensive stuff in the hand without access to the credits to afford to use them. The issue really is low trace and low strength. At its best, is a one-credit tax on Mimic. At its worst, the corp goes broke while the runner has wanted tools already in hand. So yes, this all highlights why the Trace 6 at least addresses one of those issues. Uh, Reboot's general theory is not to adjust text on the card if possible, and so that has not been done. And then when choosing between the Strength and the Trace, since the effect is largely based on the strength of the trace, that was clearly a better way to buff the card. And let's also talk about salvage. It's the dreaded zero. And yet, because the trace is two to provide a tag, it's still probably dead in the water. Uh, here is the Netrunner DB review by Awkward Pizza. To put it simply... This card is garbage in essentially every way, but I'll elaborate. First off, it's broken for zero by Yogg.0 every time. This was considered a crippling weakness back when it was released, but now, this comment from December of 2014, about a year and a half after the pack was released, Yogg.0 isn't nearly as popular. Still, it's worth noting that it'll be worthless against certain Anarch matchups. Secondly, it can't be advanced while unrezzed. That means that it can't take the runner by surprise, which is the only real value in tracing tag subroutines. Furthermore, it won't do a single thing. The first time it's run against, you'll just res it, and the runner will go past it since it has no subroutines. Thirdly, it has zero strength. That's complete crap. It will always be broken for one per subroutine, if you don't count breakers like Knight. I guess you could see a little bit of play in weird Wayland Midway Station Grid decks, but honestly, it's likely still bad there. This ice is the true representation of the fact that Wayland has almost no good code gates. So, we appreciate that review by Awkward Pizza. And so it's interesting that his complaints were not about the cost of resing it, but about the low trace strength and the low uh, strength of the ice itself. And those have not been adjusted. The res cost has been adjusted. So I think this is probably a situation where uh, the big boy is going to be like, yeah, well, nothing can be done with just one number to make this card good. This is the best option. I'm still going to try to use it and regret it, I'm sure. 
Data Sucker. New ice and economy options from humanity's shadow. Let's talk about Eve campaign. And with the uh, advent of the buff to marked accounts, uh, that slots right into this discussion also. I talked about and compared back in episode 15, Adana's campaign, pad campaign, and marked accounts. And uh, Eve campaign functions very similarly to those. So let me just run through briefly what they all do, and then we can compare them. And then I've got a Netrunner DB review from Eve campaign. So Eve campaign, you click to install it. It now costs four to res. You gain two credits for each of the next eight turns, and the trash cost is five. For Adonis campaign, you click to install it. It costs four to res. You gain three credits for each of the next four turns, and the trash cost is much less at three. Pad campaign, you click to install it. Costs two to res. You gain one credit for each of the next infinity turns, and the trash cost is four. And then marked accounts. It functions a little differently, but uh, it, it provides money in the same way. You click to install it. It's zero to res. That's important. Then you have to click to add three, well, now four credits to it. And then at the beginning of each turn, you gain a credit. And you have to keep reloading it. And its trash cost is also a pretty healthy five. So applying the rule that one click and one credit are basically the same, it costs one thing. Eve costs you five credits and clicks to install. You gain 16 over the course of eight turns, which means it's a net profit of 11 credits. It takes you eight turns to get to 11 credits, that is true. But it is turning a profit by turn three. Adonis also costs you five. You will gain 12 credits over four turns for a net of seven, although you are making a profit already by turn two. But there is a, the important difference between those two, right? Eve will get you 11 credits by the time it runs out. Adonis gets you seven. It gets them to you faster in half the time. In that same four turns, Eve's only going to get you three. But Eve gets you more. Again, they fill slightly different niches, but that's why it's good. A pad campaign, meanwhile, costs you three to install. That's three clicks and credits combined. By the time you are turning a profit, that's four turns. It takes you to start turning a profit. But then by the time you match the power of Adonis, that seven credits gained, it takes you 10 turns. To match what Eve campaign can do takes you 14, which Eve again only needs eight. Marked accounts, meanwhile, is a little harder, it's a little harder to explain how it, how it functions. So first it's going to cost you two clicks or credits, in this case it's clicks, and then you can gain four credits over four turns, right, by completely depleting it. That does give you a 
net profit by turn three, and a total net of two credits gained. So then you load it again. And over eight total turns, now you have netted five credits. Now notice Eve is giving you 11 over eight turns, but that is exactly the same as pad campaign. So both pad campaign and marked accounts over the course of eight turns for the same cost. In case of pad campaign, it's two credits and a click. Marked accounts, it's zero credits and three clicks, but for the same cost of three, pad campaign and marked accounts are giving you a net gain of five. Then you reload marked accounts again. Now you've spent four and you're up to get to a net of eight in 12 turns. Uh, so a net of seven in 11 turns. It takes pad campaign only 10 turns to get to a net of seven. It takes Adonis only four. Uh, it takes Eve campaign only six. It takes marked accounts 12. I mean 11. It's a lot longer. But then, of course, you can keep going. And so the game continues, let's say, by the time you get to having spent the same five as Eve campaign or Adonis campaign, uh, you're gaining 16 credits over the course of 16 turns, and you have now netted 11. So Marked Accounts does pay out as much as Eve campaign for the same cost. It just takes twice as long. And, and it takes uh, a couple turns longer even than Pad Campaign uh, to pay out that net of 11 credits. But still, that extra credit, I think, is, is kind of a big deal because that makes it from being more similar to Pad Campaign to being more similar to Eve Campaign, which seems to me like quite an upgrade. But this was supposed to be about Eve Campaign. So let's go back to the Netrunner DB review of Eve Campaign from Greasy Thumb. Eve lies on the extreme of a long curve of economy cards. Well, as I just established, marked accounts actually lies on that, that extreme. But still, Eve is also pretty far out there. Her net profit is 11. That is a totally absurd amount of money for a card and a click. Her drawbacks are equally huge. Assuming you res her at the end of the runner's turn, you still have to wait through two more of their turns before she's even turning a profit. That's a huge delayed reaction that will put short-term pressure on your economy, quite apart from the fact that any halfway decent runner will be looking to trash Eve as a high priority. Eve's high trash cost makes her a punishing tax on the runner in a naked remote, but that's offset by her equally high res cost. Although again now, not equally high, but it is still pretty high. In a scoring remote, she's pretty much invincible, but her frustratingly slow payoff means you run the risk of building up agendas in hand while she does her beautiful financial magic. Sometimes it's the right answer to trash Eve in favor of an agenda. The more money you pass up to do this, the more it telegraphs to the runner that they should be looking to check out your remote. Okay, let's talk about ice. There are three new pieces of ice. We want to sort those into our taxing and end the run uh, 
analysis. But let's start with Whirlpool, which is only the second piece of trap ice in the in the uh, well in the pool, and both of which are Jinteki. And I hate to keep falling back on this because I've already done it three times before, but I think that this is also a combo piece. I don't think it's actually ETR or taxing, since generally what Whirlpool does, of course, is it makes the runner continue, whether the runner wants to or not. Well, generally the corp doesn't want the runner to continue, and generally the runner doesn't intend to jack out anyway. So this has to be there as a way to force the runner into doing something that they otherwise wouldn't want to do, maybe some kind of probing run. So why would that be the case? Well, maybe there's some nasty ice subroutine that you want to fire. So in that case, Whirlpool has to be further out than that. So that's going to be later in the game. But then if it's later in the game, aren't they going to be more likely to have the tools to handle whatever ice you have out there? I don't know. It seems to be be hard to get the conditions right to have specific subroutines to fire anyway without also dragging the runner into something. So it really seems like it's hard to work with a normal piece of ice. Uh, But what about some of the combo pieces? Well, I think that's where Whirlpool actually is designed to be. It's probably Cell Portal's best friend. Because what does everybody want Cell Portal to be able to do? To kick you out and make you come back through. Well, that's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. However, If you've put Cell Portal on the inside, some taxing pieces outside of that, and then Whirlpool on the far outside, well, now the runner comes, you don't res Whirlpool, the runner comes through the taxing pieces, maybe can't break Cell Portal, and then you kick them back out, now you res Whirlpool, now they're stuck, right? Am I thinking about that right? No. I think you have to res Whirlpool first because they can jack out as they're approaching Whirlpool, right? As you res it? Hmm. I don't remember the timing on that. Well, even if you have to do res it first, that's fine because it doesn't change anything. They have to pay their way through the tax, then you kick them out with a cell portal, and then they have to pay again. Now, what if they can't pay the second time? Maybe you've got something that'll like a roto turret or an archer, something that's going to do some damage. Well, there's there's your combo. So if you have more than money than the runner and you want to create some kind of deadly server loop, here's how you do it. Also, bullfrog. Right, the whole point of bullfrog, once again, you, you have the idea of you jump the runner to another server, but then the runner can just jack out. Well, put Whirlpool on the outside of that, and now they can't. So that's where, you know, all of these pieces, like I've said before, I think the core set and the Genesis cycle should be viewed as one piece, one set. And so that's why we see that, you know, we had cell portal in the core set, we have whirlpool here, but really taken as a whole, you see that all the pieces are there, uh, but they just took a little while to get to it. Even still, 
I, I would say that these cases, use cases, seem less good than fun. All right, let's move on to salvage. This is the third card in this particular suite that started with Woodcutter, the sentry that does net damage, and then Tyrant, the barrier that, well, ends the run. And while Tyrant is somewhat okay, Salvage, the code gate that tags, really seems to have landed with Woodcutter. I've already discussed that it's not good, which I think is perfectly understandable. Uh, in the comment in our NRDB says that you know, Wayland isn't supposed to be good at code gates. All right. But if the tagging the runner was too easy, well, how overpowered might that be in Wayland, right? Still, that's not what this segment's about. This segment's about how we sort it. Well, clearly it's a taxing piece of ice, right? Doesn't end the run. But even with only one subroutine, uh, it's it's only a two-strength trace. So if the corp doesn't pay into it, that's a fairly light tax, right? The, the runner can spend two credits, assuming they have no link, dodge the trace, dodge the tag, which is roughly equivalent to ignoring it completely and then spending a click and two credits to ta- uh, to remove the tag later. Of course, that tax goes up with each subroutine, So if the corp invests two or three advancements, well, now to pay through that, it's two or four or six credits, unless that you're floating tags, and then it doesn't matter at all, of course. But is the corp going to want to invest that much in it? Again, the strength is zero. So that means that, you know, every decoder is breaking it for cheap, for almost free. Uh, It just comes down to how much does it cost to break a subroutine. So for it to actually cost Gordian Blade or Zool four to make it analog taxing, it has to have four subroutines on it, four advancement counters. Although if it's force of nature you're up against, you only need three. Peacock, you only need two. But Binary taxing seems to be the way to go here with salvage. A data hound, I think, is a more textbook case of binary taxing ice. So without a killer out, the runner has to tangle with a trace six. So I think most of the time the runner's just going to let that go. Uh, who's going to pay anything into a trace six just to dodge this effect? Right? Because... Assuming they just let the subroutine go, the trace go, basically they're taking what's essentially a targeted net damage, but it's from the top several cards of their deck, um, and maybe their more useful tools get buried an extra few cards deep. It could be significant. I mean, maybe it's the one copy of something they really want that's in their deck. Uh, but, you know, it could be nothing. And, uh, you know, either way. They're not going to pay it, but most killers turn it off for just one or two. Uh, Ninja needs three. Pipeline needs three. Binary. Uh, One other potential use is as an early game ice, just for information. And that can be useful, knowing what 
the next few cards the runner's going to draw is doesn't tell you what's in the runner's hand. So, uh, but it's something. So a couple of binary taxing ice and a combo piece this time around. Mandatory upgrades. Eve campaign. Now, I've talked about Eve campaign a lot already. It's a really good economy option. Uh, I don't know that I mentioned it in this episode, but it's a nice credit sink for uh, account siphon. So if you're being going to be account siphoned as the corp and you have an unrezzed Eve, well, there you can sink not five anymore, but still four of your credits into something. That's true of Adonis also, of course. But Eve, you're getting a much more bang for your buck. But I think it's the particular upgrade I wanted to mention was for the Waldemar deck that I discussed at length uh, some episodes back. Uh, I that It was in that deck, but I removed it and I had to use something else in its place. I think I put in private contracts, maybe, something neutral. Eve is way better. So put Eve campaign in that deck. That's a great upgrade for it. But any upgrade deck that's already using Adonis, uh, maybe Eve can provide the same function for you if you're okay leaving it sitting there for a while. Not a deck where you're going to put Adonis into a remote, let it burn out, and then put an agenda into that remote. Eve's not great as good for that. But if you want more money over a longer period, oh, hey, maybe use them both. Enigma. Let's talk about some of the allusions and flavor text from the cards in Humanity's Shadow. We'll look at both sides here. I talked about Surge last week. I do believe that the flavor text in Surge, that you must yell Surge for it to have full effect, is an allusion to the commercial for the soft drink Surge from the mid-90s. Creeper, which looks like a spider climbing up something, the flavor text talks about uh, going up the data spout. Naturally, that's a reference to the itsy-bitsy spider. Uh, Kraken, uh, we've heard references to releasing the Kraken. It's a legendary sea monster based on, uh, I guess, probably a large squid. Interestingly, I looked at, I wondered if there was some theme in salvage, woodcutter, and tyrant. Now that we've seen salvage has a tornado on it and it says you're not in kansas anymore i thought well is that a wizard of oz reference because in woodcutter right it's an axe the the uh the tin woodman right isn't that his name man it's been a long time since i've watched wizard of oz but i don't see how tyrant fits into that theme so uh, maybe that's maybe that's not it foxfire the the flavor text says it's kind of like an anagram, kind of. Uh, naturally, I think the reference is to Firefox, the internet browser that was, it's still around, right? Certainly was more popular 10 years ago. HQ interface. So those are all just, uh, those are all just allusions to various things. HQ interface is a different kind of, uh, different kind of thing because what you have is this statue of a fox on a desk, and it's just like this this desk ornament, but it's got its eyes are glowing. So 
the idea is that you're interfacing with headquarters because you've smuggled in this little piece of hardware that actually is hacking into their system. So that's a, I think that's a neat little point. But I wanted to talk at some length about the nested references in Xanadu, the uh, runner resource. So the flavor text says, and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So this is a uh, Coleridge is a turn of the 19th century poet, and this flavor quote is from the end of his poem Kubla Khan. The first lines of Kubla Khan say, In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. So Xanadu is an actual place, um, Chinese is Shangdu, but is best known as the summer capital of the Mongol Empire in the 13th century. It was described by Marco Polo, and uh, there's an interpolation of that description that was the basis for Coleridge's poem. It was ruled by Kublai Khan, or Kublai Khan, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan, who you may have heard of. So that's where Xanadu comes from, and that's how it's related to that poem. Now the artwork, though, shows a gate outside of a mansion, or that's what I've always imagined it is, but I looked at it a little bit closer, and it looks more like it's a, maybe a, a multi-towered skyscraper sitting back there. But to me, this is clearly meant to evoke a different Xanadu, not the Xanadu from the Coleridge poem from the Mongol Empire, but the one from the movie Citizen Kane. Uh, it's a mansion that the title character, Charles Foster Kane, a media mogul, uh, lavishly built for himself. That, Xanadu in that movie from like 1940 or something, is also a reference, and it was a, a satirization of William Randolph Hearst, who was still living at the time, also a media mogul, and he had a castle in California called Hearst Castle. So that's a lot of heavy flavor weight for a card that, one, has a very small amount of actual effect text, and B, has never seen a lot of use. So anyway, how does all of this tie into the ability? The ability of Xanadu is the res cost of all ice is increased by one. I will leave that as an exercise to the listener, which is just code for, I have no idea. But, you know, actually here are a few possibilities. One, since the real life Hearst and the fictional Kane were newspaper men, maybe the added attention from the media makes it harder or more expensive for the corpse to do their work. So their ice costs more, one more to res because all of the attention being, it's like a bank shot to, for that to make any sense. Uh, even more of a stretch, here's my second option. Since Xanadu has come to represent the lifestyle excesses of the rich, 
Maybe this is just meant to represent a rich backer that's supporting the runner. And, well, then why isn't you, aren't you giving the runner a credit? Well, instead, the credit is subtracted from the corp. I don't know. That makes a little less sense. I think the most likely actual explanation is they had this piece of art, had nothing better to attach it to, and some learned scholar on the staff, my money would be on Damon, thought this would make a neat reference. And so there's just a total disconnect between the flavor and the effect. But I'm open to other explanations, if you have one. And the final the final uh, bit of flavor text I wanted to point out, which I almost used for the title of the episode, is from Whirlpool, where Guru just says, this ice sucks. And that's true in two ways, right? Because a whirlpool, literally. If you have to explain the joke, it makes it a lot less better. Anyway, many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. Our website is netrunner2.1.com. Uh, go to retechie.fun to play games of in the Reboot Project. Join the Reboot Discord server in order to find games uh, for the Reboot Project. Or contact me. All this information is in the show notes. In the AstroScript pilot program this time around, we're back to the worlds of Android for the final two pieces in the, the section about Haas Bioroid. A stump speech for some candidate and a Bioroid awakening. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Transcript log 44.32114. California Congressional Election Campaign. Third San San Metroplex Rally. Hands up. How many of you are human? Is that a full house? I think so. Surprising, really, since there are more and more bioroids in our great state of Southern California every day. It feels like bioroids infiltrated our society when we weren't looking. Twenty years ago, there were no bioroids. Zero. Now, they are nearly 1% of our population. That's over 100 million of them worldwide. We are approaching a tipping point, my friends. Haas Bioroid claims that it employs humans to manufacture the androids, but how much longer will that be true? Robots already do most of the assembly, and mark my words, we are only months away from bioroids assembling bioroids, and we all know where that leads. The first bioroids were a technological marvel, but they didn't look human, and they certainly couldn't act human. Now they're everywhere. They're harder to spot, and they're taking the jobs that were once reserved for us, for humans. Worst of all, groups like Sam insist on treating them as if they were human. Bioroids are machines. They are not alive. I have an auto chef in my kitchen at home with a top-of-the-line AI. I don't mind telling you, friends, it's a better cook than I am. But that doesn't make it human. That doesn't give it rights. Now, I heard this recently.
Some bioroids actually receive salaries for the work they do, make purchases, some even own property. There are humans out of work, unable to feed their families. How is it that bioroids, that machines, live in luxury while flesh and blood humans struggle? The time has come for us to define what a person is and assert that humans, and only humans, have rights. And, and, we must also clarify a bioroid's responsibilities. Bioroids are sublet, sold, passed on, discarded, salvaged, and reused. We need to know where bioroids are and who owns them. We need to know what they're up to. We have licenses for guns, even pets. So why not for bioroids, too? We must ensure that their details are available through private property records. Machines do not need privacy. We do need to know who owns the bioroids that are strong enough to tear us apart. And when they do, and they will, we need to know explicitly, clearly, who to punish for the crime. Haas Bioroid developed the three directives as a PR stunt. It was the right move, but they'll push the envelope. They already are. The directives should be mandatory for all AI, and they should be ironclad. Haas Bioroid's PR claims that the directives are unbreakable. Yet some Bioroids lie commit crimes, and defy human authority. So much for the unbreakable directives. If a bioroid commits a crime, it is because its human programmer allowed it. We must shut down Haas Bioroid and all android manufacturing until the corpse can prove that these problems have been corrected. That may seem harsh, but look at Brazil. They've banned Android manufacture within their borders for years and haven't suffered for it. We must go further. We must ensure that Androids, that all AI, are made to the highest ethical standards. We looked at the possibility of murderous AI in the war, and we decided, rightly, as a species, that we did not like it. Why are we allowing Haas Bioroid to lead us back down that path? a path we've already considered and rejected. Why give AI any freedom at all? There are those who disagree, who believe that we should plunge full speed ahead into these new and untested technologies. Haas Bioroid, of course, other corps, even the government. There are Bioroid police officers in New Angeles. Can you believe it? How long until these bioroid officers are carrying guns? Bioroids are already dangerous enough. I say we cannot trust bioroids to have power over our very lives, and we cannot trust Haas bioroids' promises to keep them under control. The control needs to belong to a higher power, to Congress, so we can keep the megacorp and its creations on a tight leash. Let's face it, my friends. Good, decent, 
God-fearing Americans have more to fear from the bioroids than from Martian terrorists or any external threat. They are dangerous economically, eroding the strong middle class that once made this country great. They are dangerous on a personal level, with unregulated AI controlling a robotic body capable of wreaking great bodily harm. They are dangerous on a philosophical and spiritual level, soulless automatons that may have no need for human beings to populate the world. Send me to Congress, and I will protect you from the androids. I will ensure the golems serve us, and not the other way around. Ismina Parker, G., Southern California Awareness A hexagonal room, three meters on a side. Fluorescent lights in the standard visible light spectrum. Transplas walls set to opaque near white. Local gravity 0.1654 g. Lunar standard. Bioroid J series 89Z3L7 sat up from where it lay on a gurney in the center of the room and looked around itself. A man stood in the room wearing a white coat over a slimline enviro suit. He was in good health, although the bioroid noted that his body mass index was slightly higher than recommended. He had wisps of white hair on his head and a triangular white beard, so the bioroid estimated his age in his sixth or seventh decade. His skin and facial features suggested a Eurasian ancestry. The man held an input tablet in one hand. Hello, said the bioroid. Hello, answered the man. He turned to the nearest wall and dragged his finger across the data pane that shimmered there. A check mark appeared on the wall beneath the word hello. It was the sixteenth such check mark. Also written on the display, in American, were good morning slash evening, ten check marks. I am name, three check marks. Who are you? Where am I? Two check marks. And other, one check mark. The man turned back to the bioroid and consulted his interface pad. Since the man seemed to have nothing more to say, the bioroid stood and examined the room. There was no need for it to turn its head since the sensors all over its body gave it complete 360-degree vision. But it did so anyway, shifting its whole body to bring the sculpture against the far wall into the binocular vision of its two eyes. The sculpture was of a human male crouched with its chin resting on one hand, carved from lunar basalt. The Bioroy recognized it as a copy of Rodin's The Thinker. It knew the history of the piece, and that it was considered a significant piece of art. But looking at it with its own eyes, the Bioroid wasn't certain it understood. Twenty seconds passed. State your name, please, said the man. 
The bioroid turned and stated its designation. J-Series 89Z3L7. The man glanced at his interface pad and nodded. Good, he said. Do you recognize me? No, said the bioroid. Try accessing the Haas Bioroid internal employee database, said the human, tapping at his interface pad. The bioroid reached out with that other sense, the one it had not yet had called to use. It found a wireless signal, connected, was authenticated, and downloaded the database for future reference. You are Heinrich Jordan Hauptmann Klein, awakening technician, it said. Your name is long, and using the entire name is unnecessarily formal. May I call you Heinrich? Please do, said Heinrich, stepping to a counter against one of the six walls. Heinrich, are you evaluating me? asked the bioroid. Heinrich nodded, which was a common way to say yes. Why did you mark down that I said hello to you? Is that important? I track everyone's first words every day on that pane, he said, turning to look at it. Sometimes we take bets what the most popular first words will be. Today, it's hello. It's not part of the evaluation. Don't worry about it. Okay, said the bioroid. I will not worry about it. Heinrich nodded and pulled a 5.75 centimeter red rubber ball from a pocket of his lab coat. He bounced it off the floor and far over the bioroid's head in the weak lunar gravity. The bioroid watched the ball bounce with interest off its chest. Catch it, said Heinrich. The bioroid snatched it from the air. Good catch. Thank you, said the bioroid. He was very pleased that it had made a good catch and that Heinrich was pleased. Would you like your ball back? Why don't you toss it into that bucket there? Heinrich pointed to a bucket 3.7 meters away, resting on a countertop 1.1 meters above the floor. The bioroid turned and tossed the ball with a gentle underhand motion. It bounced off the rim of the bucket. Why did I miss? The bioroid stepped forward, blocking the ball with its foot as it rolled across the hard plascrete floor. It hoped that Heinrich would not be displeased so soon after complimenting the bioroid on its catch. You need practice, said Heinrich. You're using your optical brain for gross motor, which is more efficient but less precise than your quantum parallel brain. He touched his own head smiling, which indicated warmth and happiness. It's like my brain that way. I will practice, the bioroid said. It bent down and picked up the ball, holding it carefully, feeling its exact mass, 55 grams, measuring the exact distance, 2.172 meters. This time, the ball went directly into the bucket. I did it. Yes, you did, said Heinrich, and held a plastic bucket, 15 centimeters tall, out toward the bioroid. Reach in here and remove a tag, please. The bioroid did so. Its fingertips felt the tags, 2 centimeters by 4.5 centimeters, 
steel backed with a magnetic strip. And the micro-cameras on its hand saw them clearly. Each had a name written on it in block letters. Which should I take? Choose randomly, said Heinrich. And the Bioroid lifted the first one its fingers touched, with Ulysses written on it. You can go by Ulysses for now. Your owner can give you a new name if he or she wants to. Ulysses is a masculine name, said the Bioroid. Am I male? You're neither male nor female, or you're either, as it suits you, said Heinrich, tapping away at his interface. Some Bioroids are programmed with a gender identity, but the J-series is fluid by design. However, it will be simpler for you to choose a gender, probably the one that matches your name, and perform that until your owner asks you to switch. Okay, said the Bioroid. I will choose a gender, probably one that matches my name. The Bioroid attached the tag to its chassis, above where its heart would have been if it had been human. I choose male. Pleased to meet you, Heinrich, he said. My name is Ulysses. Heinrich and Ulysses shook hands.